In John chapter 4, starting in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Most of you realize that I've been in this text that he just read three weeks. And uh, the good news is I'm not in it this morning again. We have the wrong text. As he started to read, I realized we got the wrong scripture and we didn't communicate this morning. So I'm not in it four weeks this morning. I am going to allude to it, though, eventually in my message. So we'll go back there, but not completely back there this morning. We're, we're going to continue on in the Gospels and... Uh, we're looking at the magnificence of Christ. And uh, I hope God will just continue to help us to see that. Because I am convinced, as we see Him, He transforms our lives. I, I was thinking this morning as they were singing that song. And it talked about the vilest of sinners. I hope when you hear that, you don't look next to you. Or the pew ahead of you. Or the pew behind you. I hope you look at yourself. I thought of the Apostle Paul and what he said, that he was the chief of sinners. But as to legalistic righteousness, he got an A. As to churchiness, he got an A. As to clean and squeaky on the outside, he got an A. As to acceptable to society, he got an A. But he knew his heart. And Paul asked often, I think, what's going on in my heart? I hope songs like that turn into your heart. He saved the vilest of sinners right here and right there. All of us. All of us are in that same camp if we're in Christ. In fact, we don't know really how vile it is. We don't know what a violation we committed when we committed sin before a holy God. But we're looking at Christ and the hope of the gospel 
in the midst of that. And there is hope as we look to him. This morning's text, as, as much of the Gospels do, keeps us off balance. The text that we want to look at is the text that comes in Luke chapter 4. Let me read that text to you this morning. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elisha, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elisha was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built. So that they could show him, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. These texts like this, and they're all over the Gospels. As we're looking at the Gospels in chronological orders, we're walking through the life of the, of, of the Christ and the Gospels chronologically as best we can discern how those events lined up in history. You come to passages again and again that just send you off balance. It happened last week in the text that Pastor Jason read this morning. It happened to the to the people who were surrounding the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. The woman who had five husbands and was living with a man who was not her husband. What sends you off balance is that it's to her, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. In other words, he made the strongest declaration, as we said in past weeks, the strongest declaration to his Messiahship to that woman. Not to Nicodemus a little while earlier. Not to the religious leader, but to her. I hope when you read that, it just kind of sends you off balance. Jesus 
does that. And the reason he does that, I think, is he goes to our heart. He goes to the heart. He saw the heart of the woman. And that's where Jesus always goes. And that's where we need to go. That's why I made the statement this morning, even in reference to that song. If we come to realize that Jesus died for the vilest of sinners, and that's the camp I live in, you're beginning to really understand this walk of faith and what the gospel's all about. The more you see your own heart, the more you see the intricacies of your heart, the more you see, as we said in my Sunday school class, the thorniness of your heart, the ways in which your heart responds to the heat and the brokenness of the world in thorny ways, the more you see that and the depths to which you see how your heart does gymnastics as it responds to that the more you're understanding this gospel of grace. Jesus always went to the heart. If you don't go to the heart, you're not going to understand what Jesus had to say. And I'm grateful for that. It gives me great hope that the one that Jesus most revealed himself to was this woman. I can relate to this woman. As I see my heart, as I see where my heart wants to go sometimes, I relate to that and I have hope in that. I hope you find hope there. I hope you find hope in who he spoke to and who he extended grace to here in this text. But this week now, we're going to stay off balance. We got off balance there. We're going to continue there. We, we aren't going to fully catch our balance as we now go to the text we're in today. Jesus went home. That's really where he went. He went to Nazareth. And the reports were preceding him. If you look in the text as we read this morning in verse 14, it said, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through the surrounding area. In other words, his, the things that were happening, the things that were stirring around Jesus preceded him as he now came to Nazareth. In fact, probably because of that, the synagogue was full that particular day. The Scripture says... That as Jesus stood up to read in verse 20, that all of the eyes were fixed on him. I don't think it's any, any uh, mistake that that was put there purposely. That Luke included the fact that people's eyes were glued on Jesus. There was an anticipation all throughout that synagogue as Jesus came home. Because they had heard reports of this hometown boy who was now returning home. And they all sat fixed on him. And the scripture says that they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But be careful as you read that statement. You have to have the rest of that text in mind to really understand the graciousness. In other words, they were liking what they were hearing. They were glad that the hometown boy had come home, but they weren't glad for the right reasons. That becomes evident pretty quickly in here because as he speaks, as he stands up, and even as that commentary is made, they say in the next verse, verse 22, is not this Joseph's son? There's murmuring going on in the synagogue. Murmuring about this hometown boy. Probably talking about to one another, have you heard what things were occurring just a ways away? 
And there was an anticipation that this hometown boy was now going to come home. And he was going to do the same thing in their midst. How do we know that? Because Jesus said it. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus knew the hearts of the people in that synagogue. And he knew to be careful about their gracious words. Because their agenda was different than his. He knew their hearts. He went to their hearts. And their hearts were all about themselves. Their hearts were all about what Jesus might do for them according to their agenda. That's why they turned out that day. That's why they were in the synagogue. That's why there was anticipation and excitement. And they missed the message completely. These people who came to hear Jesus and heard Jesus stand up and say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Didn't hear it. Oh, they heard it. But they put it through an agenda that was much different than what Jesus meant by what He said. They missed the message. The reason we know that is because of what Jesus went on to say a little later. And we'll come to that. But what is the message they missed? They had their own agenda. But the message they missed is that Jesus came. He came for the poor in spirit. He came for those who were spiritually bankrupt. He came for those who were captives to sin, who knew the vileness of their heart and knew the places their heart took them. Those who were blind and needed to have their eyes opened, needed to know the way to go and the way to turn and the one to cling to. They missed that message. They missed the message. And Jesus then in this particular text turns to two illustrations that tell us why they missed it. Why did they miss that message? Why did these people, these hometown people, who turned out, miss the message? And the the evidence of it is that they were full of their own righteousness. They were satisfied. They didn't see vileness in their heart. They Oh, they saw vileness. But when a song like that was sung in the synagogue, they were looking to the person who wasn't in the synagogue. They weren't the vile ones. They weren't the ones who were poor in spirit. They weren't the ones who were captive. They were the chosen ones. It was those outsiders who were the vile ones. You see why it's so important when a song gets sung like that? Because you'll be just like them. If that song took you someplace besides your own heart, you're just like the people in the synagogue that day. Jesus deals with our hearts. He speaks to our hearts because He knows our hearts. And we need to continually ask, what's going on in my heart? It's the only remedy. It's the only way that we won't fall victim to what happened to these people who were sitting in that synagogue that day who missed the message Because they were resting in their own self-righteousness. Look at the evidence of that. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. 
I mean, he's at the top of his game in one sense. These were gracious words. These people were liking that the hometown boy had come home. And after he tells a couple of stories, they want to push him off a cliff. Why? Because they were resting in their own self-righteousness. The evidence of that are the stories that he told. Look at the two things that he talks about. He talks about Elisha. And he talks about the time of great famine that came over the land. And it talks about Elisha being sent in verse 26. It says, Elisha was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, who was a Gentile. That was unmistakable to the people who were hearing it. She was one of those vile ones out there. And Jesus said, that's who Elijah went to and none of you. And then to pour a little more fuel on the fire, he turns to the prophet Elisha. And he says there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, not the Jew. The one out there is the one Elisha went to. You see the picture? The reason Jesus tells those stories is because he knows the hearts. He knows the hearts of the people in that synagogue. And he knows those hearts of those people in the synagogue are not thinking about how poor in spirit they are. And how much in bondage they are. And how vile their hearts are. The vileness has to do with those outside the synagogue. Those of not Jewish lineage in their eyes. Well, you see how Jesus just keeps us off balance? He keeps us off balance continually in our lives. Jesus attacks in this instance, what gave life to these people. When he holds those two stories, he attacked what gave life to those people sitting in that synagogue. And what gave life to the people in that synagogue was their own self-righteousness. And when he attacked it, when he pressed on it, when he pushed on it, they responded. They erupted to the point of wanting to push him off the cliff. That's what happens that's what happens, and that's what causes Jesus to keep people off balance. Because just when people want to rest in the wrong thing, Jesus pushes on it. He's not going to let us do that, because He goes to our heart. He doesn't let us rest on anything other than Him. He pushes us away from self-righteousness, from moralism. He goes to the heart of the matter. Let me let me share this morning a couple of things. First of all, to ask a couple of questions. The first question is this. Why don't we easily go where these people should have gone? Why did these people in that synagogue not just naturally go to their hearts? Why is it that we want to look at the person ahead of us or beside us when a song like that gets sung? Why not to ourselves? Well, there's two reasons for that. Um, there's a reason for that that then leads to two other things. The reason for that is we don't see the gospel. The reason people don't want to look at their own heart. The thing that keeps you today, if you're not willing to really examine your own heart, 
if you're not willing to look at the vileness of your own heart at times, it's because you really don't have the gospel central in your life. The only thing that will allow us to do that is the gospel. Because if we don't have the gospel, two things happen. One is what happened in this story. One is what happened with these people in the synagogue. They turn to self-righteousness. When, when, when Jesus attempts to lay them bare, they've got to go cling to something. And so they cling to their self-righteousness. Because that's, that's the thing that they find their security in. Or the second way that that happens is people just run away and they don't hear the message. They just stay away from anything that would remind them to look at their heart. They run away. They run away from God. Um, one of the interesting things uh, that happens, that I see happening in our, in our community sometimes is um, we, we have a number of Hutterite colonies around us. And one of the characteristics that often happens when, when one of the members of the colony may decide to leave is I find that they don't only leave the colony, but they, in, in, in essence, run away from God in most cases. Not always, but most of them run away from God because they, they feel that condemnation. They feel, they feel that to, to not do that just brings condemnation upon them, part of Part of the theology of that is the, the fact that their salvation is, is tied in many cases to being in the colony. So they just run away. They go and hide. So there's two responses to not having a gospel-centric motif in your life. Not really seeing the gospel as central. You will either rest in your self-righteousness because it gives you safety. Or you will run away. Completely run away. Now let me let me share a story with you that illustrates both of these things and and how both of these people, one fit in the camp of self-righteousness, one fit in the camp of running away, and when they got the gospel central, it changed everything for them. Let me read it to you this morning. It's the story of a of a of a judge and a, a man that he had sentenced to prison. Uh, this is how it reads. It says, and this is a true story, a large prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. And those mission churches located in the slums of a major city were some outstanding cases of conversions, thieves, burglars, and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw the f- a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and become a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Do you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few more moments And then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor who was walking beside him nodded in agreement and concurred a marvelous miracle of grace. Indeed, the pastor declared. The judge then stopped and he inquired, but to whom do you refer, pastor? 
the former convict, the pastor announced. The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself. I don't understand. This is his reply. You see, the judge went on, it is not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus could be his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancies to live as a gentleman. That my word was to be my bond. That I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure that I was, I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. You see it there? You see one man, the outcast, the one who had been convicted to serve seven years, ran away from God. The other man rested in his self-righteousness, the judge. Those are the two responses that people go to. We either rest in our self-righteousness or we run away from God. We have to do something to pacify ourselves. We have to do something to dull the declaration. We have to do something to salve our conscience. Either just quit hearing it or rest in the wrong thing. In this case, that's where they landed, in one of those two camps, until the gospel became understood by both. And when they began to see the gospel of God's grace, the outcast embraced it, and the legalist and moralist embraced it, and their lives were transformed. Those are the two things that happen in lives that don't have the gospel central, one or the other. We, we have to do that as the voice comes at us. So the question of why don't we easily go there is, is because we're not understanding the gospel. The more we get the gospel central, the more we see it, the more we can rest in it, the more we understand what God has done for us, the more willing we are to look at our own hearts, the more willing we're to declare that I'm the vilest of sinners. It's me. That's exactly what the judge did. I am the greater miracle. I'm the vilest. I'm the chief of sinners, as the Apostle Paul declared. But you'll never get there. You will never go there unless you understand the gospel of God's grace. In this passage, it's interesting how Jesus declared it here. If you look at this text, if you look at what he declared here, you will find that it comes out of Psalm or excuse me, Isaiah 61. And actually, he doesn't declare all of Isaiah 61. He leaves out a passage. He declares all that I read to you, but he leaves out these words, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, there will be a day when that comes. But not at this point. When Jesus stood up in the temple, and he declared that I've come for the poor, and I've come for the oppressed, and I'm come for the blind. He was saying, I come to offer grace. 
I come to offer myself. And if you will look to me, the second half of this will not occur for you. The declaration of Jesus here was a declaration of grace. I hope we understand it. I hope it's central in our lives. And the second question I would ask this morning, and I close with this, is why must we go there? First of all, why don't we go there? Is because we don't get the gospel central. But why must we go there? We must go there. We must go to our hearts because the world needs to see people who are willing to center their lives in this gospel. As we go there, as we must go there, and as we do go there, we go out to a world with the message. There is a world that is poor. There is a world that is in bondage. There is a world that is blind. And the reason we must go to our hearts is because it, it is a declaration that we have, we have seen the gospel. It is central in our lives. And it compels us to declare it to others. If, if you're not passionate about declaring the gospel to others, I don't often make strong statements like this, but I will today. It's because you're not centering yourself enough in it. You're not seeing yourself as the vilest of sinners. You're not seeing yourself as this judge saw himself. I'm the greatest miracle. Because when you start to see that, when you start to be overwhelmed by the grace of God, and you start to see the heart that you have, it changes the way you see others. It compels you to go to others with that grace. So the remedy? Keep the gospel central. The remedy is here what Christ says to us. That today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That I've come for the poor. I've come for the afflicted. I've come for the blind. Embrace me. Matthew's going to lead us in that gospel song. Embrace this gospel in your life. Let's stand together and sing.
to bear the blame of all who will look to him. That's my blame, Lord. And oh, how great my blame is. The vilest of sinners are we. The greatest miracle is that you saved me. Oh God, help us to see it that way in our lives. Help us not to look around us, but to look within us. And to center all of that in that gospel, in that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.